This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From going through 10 rounds of Zoom interviews to the scam that is unlimited PTO, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Did you hear about Maggie? No. Maggie is a project manager. She's been with her company for five years. Not only was Maggie laid off this past Friday, but she unknowingly bought lunch that day for her replacement without knowing it. (laughs) So she starts asking herself these questions immediately after getting laid off, right? Should I just like mass email all my friends at once and ask for referrals? And she's like, no, no, I can't. That's too desperate. Then she's like, okay, should I just go down that list and schedule a bunch of casual catch-ups with all of my network and then tell them that I got laid off? Awkward. She's like, nah, that's cringy. I mean, who wants to refer a colleague who just got fired? Then she goes, okay, should I just write a deeply reflective post and put hashtag open for work (laughs) on my LinkedIn This is what's spinning in her head. She's pissed that she bought lunch for her replacement. She's actually thinking about asking that lady to Venmo her. (laughs) At least she could give me 50% of the bill because you took my job. And look, this is the serious part because for the first time in Maggie's career, she felt stuck. And all she could think of was, holy shit, I just got laid off. Now what? Hey, before we get both of your takes here, if you love this podcast, I know we have a growing audience. If you want to come to us for that first layer of information, we've been breaking stories here, Matt. Yeah. Well, it's like you heard it first. You heard it first. Old MTV slogan. Yeah. I mean, I think last episode we were talking about a mass walkout happening at Omnicom Agency, one of the biggest ad holding companies globally, kind of the first of its kind. And we said, this could be an omen or predictor of what's coming. And lo and behold... A few days ago from the taping of this podcast, now Amazon corporate workers are planning a walkout over return to office policies. We predicted this may impact other companies. And so Amazon corporate workers are doing the same thing. They're planning a walkout because of these return to office policies. And what's interesting is the work stoppage is being organized by an internal group called the Remote Work Advocacy Group. There's <laughs> like incredible. ERGs now, enterprise resource groups dedicated towards remote work, which is cool. And they teamed up on this one with internal climate justice worker group at Amazon. So wow. I guess the carbon emissions from car commutes, they're fighting that. So it was like a perfect combo coming in together ah. to plan this walkout. I hate to admit it, but I just learned what ERG stands for. <laughs> I knew what it was, but I <laughs> I never knew until right now. It is one of those words that's bandied about, yeah. They're like clubs. Yeah, like clubs within a big corporation. I wouldn't doubt that these organizers heard our podcast. I'm wondering if that's the spark. <laughs> hey, I had a call to action at the end of that episode. I said, let's go. I would. They're probably listening to my voice on repeat like a Rocky movie. Hey, I'm not claiming it. I'm saying it's possible. <laughs> Yeah, I think Aaron's getting too big for his britches. <laughs> but you're right. Listen, the people we're talking about in a lot of this stuff that's sourced from the Glassdoor app and Fishbowl, like it really is on that edge. And that's what's so great about this podcast. We're kind of hearing it, not just here first on the podcast, the listeners are, but we're also hearing it in those conversations. Speaking of characters, Maggie, 
You heard the story, caught her by surprise. She ends up taking her replacement to lunch that day unknowingly. It's a story I think a lot of people can relate to, but Matt, maybe set us up a little bit for where we're going to take this because this is a really layered topic. To Maggie's point, right after she got laid off, the first question in our mind is, where do I go from here? When you think about finding a job and what it entails, there's like the rituals of applying to job boards and the Indeeds. But ultimately, finding a job is really all about warming up your social and professional colleagues and networks again, right? You might have forgotten a lot about these people in your professional network, perhaps that you met over a coffee or more likely than not these days over a Zoom chat. And you got to restart the engine, so to speak. And what's interesting is that really, despite just like the ubiquity of social media and these social networks, you'd think this is easier. It's actually become exponentially more difficult now these days because of the, I would say, like the physical erosion of our social capital, right? The networks and connections may be bigger, but they're also just more frail and cheaper because we're not physically interacting with them as much. One really popular kind of seminal book, the political scientist Robert Putnam wrote, it's called Bowling Alone. And it's just really the phenomena of how our social capital, our connections, networks, shared values that bind people and societies and communities were, from his vantage point, written in 1995, just disintegrating. And what's interesting is one of the principal reasons he said in that book was increased television viewing. And so from our perch in history, with social media and two years of a global pandemic at our backs, causing a massive amount of isolation and erosion in our physical social capital, it's almost comical that he would use TV as the reason, given what we're doing. And I think this is an important context to Maggie's story because, again, what exactly does finding a new job after a layoff entail? It requires calling upon the entirety of your accumulated social capital, coaxing them for referral, forwarding your resume, better yet, getting you an interview. So the entire model has gone digital and the rituals are being complicated now with this isolation. So I think Maggie's story resonates with a lot of our listeners and it's worth kind of digging into to see what could she have done or what can she do moving forward to navigate this? Aaron, have you read Bowling Alone? Not a chance. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, though, that Matt mentioned this book because there's actually a book that really informed my view of the world called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And to your point, though, so much of what he used was forecasted with television as the precursor to the internet. We're we're Gen X kids. Yeah, We are. So television is to Gen X what social media is to... Gen Z and millennials. Now, looking back at it, Matt, though, it, it maybe it's not as corrosive. You can argue that it was at least the precursor to sort of the commodification of information was the whole gist of that. Right. And so anyways, no, I didn't read that, but I know where you're coming from. And, you know, it's funny when you talk about Maggie, should Maggie have seen this coming? The first thing that was a red flag to me, not only is that Maggie buying lunch for her replacement, shouldn't she have known? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I always sound like a little bit of a jerk because I've said this before, (laughs) but there are always signs. And then bringing in someone who (laughs) could easily be your direct replacement, that's usually a bad omen, especially if you're being asked to sort of explain facets of your job to that person, onboard them. The layoffs are in the works. I've said before, like the senior team flies in from New York whatever. You see somebody leaving their office crying, whatever it may be. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, Aaron, I know you've said since you were laid off sort of early in your career, 
your whole view of like, always be ready, always be prepared, have the resume ready to go, yeah. always be on the lookout. Yeah, I don't trust anybody. Matt, was your resume always on the ready? Were you looking at the chopping block like I was? Because I'm looking around. It's like the five families. Someone's going down every single day. It's a mafia war. (laughs) Right. I think I was aware of what was going on, but it's also mentally exhausting to be doing hopefully what's kind of like quality and passion work for your current employer and looking around the corner, around the bend on what's coming and I've since learned that a lot of professionals have this issue, but networking is hard. Networking done right is hard. How so? Having developed a social network of sorts called Fishbowl, I had to dive a little deeper into what social network or social capital means. We called upon the book Bowling Alone. The author, Robert Putnam, is the political scientist around that book. He also coined the term social capital and specifically this concept of bridging social networks versus bonding social networks. And it's important for this job hunting topic that we're on today, because the type of networking that's difficult, at least for me, and I think a lot of people, a lot of my friends and colleagues have spoken with, is the bridging. I'm really good with the bonding where I have an existing contact connection and I just can go deeper with them. They can get to know me a little better. We develop a deeper bond and then I can call upon that bond for whatever favor transaction in the future. But bridging is hard for me and I think for a lot of people because You're always put into a new awkward moment, new cold situation where you have to reintroduce yourself and the way you perceive the world and all this other stuff. And I just always found that exhausting because I I like to think I'm kind of a three-dimensional person like everybody else. And how do you package that in a two-minute pitch? And so networking is really hard. And so back to the point, I find it mentally exhausting to be at a job where I'm trying to focus on the job whether it was for an employer or my own startup, and then constantly think around the bend, oh, what if I lose this? Let me always be networking. Kind of like that Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross movie, Always Be Selling, but always be networking. It's just, it's exhausting. Do you align with Matt? Is it more exhausting in the way that Matt's saying is being on the ready that way? We're not saying prepared. I'm just saying like being, always be thinking about a new job. Is that exhausting to you, Leah? I'm always looking out for signs, but I'm not necessarily Uh, always applying to jobs or actively trying to make connections and peace out. Can I offer a voice here that I think isn't about actually invalidating both of your perspectives, but maybe it's another perspective that there's some listeners, not like a third layer to this, because Matt, you have a specific look at it. Leah, you're looking for signs. You're looking for the gossip and the sort of the energy of the room. gossip. Even in a strategic way, right? Because not just clearly there's an entertaining part of it, but there's also a lot of information there that can be useful. But there's also some people listening now, I know right now, that you understand where I'm coming from. In fact, being always on the lookout is actually comforting. Hmm. Because if you surrender to the fact, you are someone who is always at the behest of someone else. That's okay. Now, for me, the idea that there was someone else running the show, driving the car, flying the plane, whatever you want to use, always brought me anxiety. And I always, every single day, was trying to decode the smiles and the handshakes. So actually, (laughs) my way of approaching it, Matt, by being 
always aware and at least hyper-vigilant about what the relationship is and always having one foot out. That doesn't mean my one foot in isn't productive and bringing tremendous value. Then you're quietly quitting, right? It's bare minimum Mondays, then it's bare minimum weeks. I'm not talking about that. (laughs) I'm talking about I'm in it, but I'm in it for just the job, the performance, and the building of my resume. And I'm a Ronin. I'm a mercenary posing as an employee, and then I'm ready to go when called upon. It's a way of reinforcing some control, right? The whole point is being an employee, you're at the relative mercy of the employer. And it feels like a position of opposite leverage where you don't have the leverage. And this is a way of you getting leverage a bit. Right. Even psychologically. Right? Or you're just a control freak, Aaron. That's that's another way to look at <laughs> it bit. too. But, but look, I, I want to clarify just because I, and I think a lot of people find what we're calling this bridging type of social networking, Rolodex building, exhausting, doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, right? It means you should do it, but perhaps apply a methodology or a system or a process that makes it easier to do. And back to Maggie and her story, she says, all of a sudden, maybe I should just start scheduling these meetings with my friends again or my colleagues to reignite the engine. And that's, well, that's the problem. You should have spaced it out. So prior to being in that position, build a schedule of meetings where over the course of any given month, maybe you have a weekly catch up with someone in the industry. If it's not in person now, it could be via Zoom. And just keep them warm that way, because you had on this idea of givers and takers. And there's a lot about this too. It's really hard to ask for a referral from a, a bridging contact that you don't know really well, suddenly when you yeah. haven't been in contact with them at all, it's just, it's kind of cringy to your point. It you is. Said. Yeah, it's like, people don't like to feel used. Yeah. Have you gotten that email or have you ever got the message where it's, hey, it's been about two and a half years and I haven't, I don't know anything about you or what you do, but, and then the ask comes. Yeah. I get angry with that kind of stuff. Not because I'm not willing to give, but it's like, they don't even lead with, or they'll lead with some bullshit line, like cool podcast. They haven't listened to a single story. I know you haven't. <laughs> right. I mean, isn't the natural building of that, what you were talking about, Matt, it actually means you have to actually give a little bit. You have to actually do a little homework. You have right. to show that you're willing to listen and hear a little bit about them before you even approach. That's just natural. Maggie's stuck because at the end of the day, she's put herself in a position now where she didn't have the four or five coffees just to hear about the kids and the vacation this past summer or just chatting it up and talking shop. Now she's in a position where it was cold and she's like, oh shit, I got to ask for some help. Isn't that also a certain personality type who's going to make those calls and have those meetings and keep up those relationships so that they are ready, whether they're using it to get new jobs or not? Like my husband will call people just like, oh, man, haven't spoken to this guy in a month and will call them up and does that all the time. Like he loves doing that. He loves keeping up all these relationships, whereas someone who's maybe more introverted. Most people have heard of like this organizational psychologist, Adam Grant. He's kind of made the TED Talk rounds and he has inspirational clips that he posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. In any case, in one of his TED Talks, he introduces this concept of like, are you a giver and taker? It's worth kind of looking into this briefly because I think it hits upon what we're talking about. And so there are three types of people, according to this framework, givers, takers, and matchers, right? It's very literal. So takers are individuals who try to get as much as possible from others, while givers are those who prefer giving generally more than they receive. And matchers are like somewhere in between. They tend to balance between giving and taking. And so What his research has shown is that while it might seem takers or matchers would be the most successful in the workplace because you're just a little more aggressive in taking, it is often 
the givers who are most successful, he finds. And it's because givers, despite being exploited sometimes, actually tend to build more supportive networks. And he doesn't use this word. This is where I bring back in what I was discussing earlier, Putnam's framework of social capital, bonding and bridging. What he really means is more bonding networks, if you apply that science here. And the result of these deeper, more thoroughly meshed contacts or nodes here is that you build a supporting number of people in your network who trust you. And when the time comes to ask for something, they give it because you've been giving it. And so I think one way if you're an introvert is I've actually seen other people do this really well. They always check and say, hey, can I do anything for you? And so they'll go out and rather than shooting the shit, which I find quite kind of difficult, just literally (laughs) say, hey, how's it going? Is is there any way I can help you or anything you're doing, your startup, can I give you an idea? And they're just constantly putting themselves out there trying to give from their time. So when the time comes that they need it, they can take. I have an off topic story, just really quickly. We're at a winery. My husband and I were talking about our good friend who's gorgeous and successful and lives in the Bay Area. And we're like, we can match him with someone. So my husband's like going through his Facebook and LinkedIn and whatever and screen grabbing all of these good looking, handsome guys in the Bay Area and goes to WhatsApp them (laughs) to my friend, but accidentally WhatsApps them to a business contact. And I was like, hey, friend, did you get all of these profiles of these dudes that we could potentially try to set you up with? And she's like, no. And then my husband looks back at his WhatsApp and the business contact is like, thank you so much for all all of these amazing contacts. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to getting in touch with some of these people. He's a giver. And I don't know where I land here. I think I'm more (laughs) mutualistic. I kind of have that matcher. But I also understand the power of leading with giving. I remember the one of the CEOs I recently worked for was like lead with giving. And he would always say that lead with giving. And I always thought, man, is that just kind of weird and tactical? I'm giving, look at me, here's the cutting of the ribbon. And maybe you could view it as sort of nefarious as far as that helps get me in good graces. I'm sure there's people who operate that sort of cold and methodical, like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing to get this. But I do think there is another approach to your point about givers where it's actually, when you just put something out there of value as a gift, sometimes if that's the only intention, meaning that's the only measurable thing that you can do, sometimes on the back end, you'll end up kind of getting things in a diverted way or in another way back to you. Here's a prime example. So I know that I can be very contractual sometimes, meaning I don't really engage with people personally outside of projects. But if you've noticed, Matt and Leah, I've done it a little bit with you in the last month or two, try to message you little things off the podcast just to say, hey, to let you know that I value you as people outside of this project. And I'm not doing it because I'm trying to kiss ass to either of you. Honestly, when I saw that Ohio area code, I'm like, this must be some yeah. US telemarketer coming Sh- after me. You're like, shut it down. I thought we yeah. were vacationing together this summer, Aaron. So we that- might be. <laughs> we're all going on a vacation. Matt, bring the kids. We're all going. Look, this giving and taking framework actually does exist in a real way in the professional workspace within big corporations and even startups. You know, here's just one or two examples. Most really successful salespeople will tell you their secret weapon is their ability to give free knowledge about a service or a product or a space that's related to what they're selling before they push hard for the sale, right? Meaning this 
vision or this idea or this mythology we have of a salesperson who's just super aggressive and coming in there thundering and pushing. Like, that's a fraud. Really successful enterprise salespeople will tell you they establish like these relationships with their clients where they're giving a lot of free information about the space that they've accumulated or the industry that they've accumulated over the course of many years in anticipation of when the time comes that client may want to upgrade their service, they trust them more. And so that's example, like a real life example in the corporations of giving. And this probably exists, Lay, I imagine in the advertising world a lot where account management and client management and you have oh, you know, these account yeah. executives developing these relationships with the brands. One other last example, just more personal for me in the startup world is, man, I remember when I was just getting acclimated to the way the systems and the processes and the frameworks that existed within the tech startup space. And there was an overabundance of advisors, once you were introduced to them, who would come in and in some cases refuse to give any input, any advice without saying, hey, send me your stock option agreement. Let me know exactly what percentage of your company I'm going to own, when it's going to invest, what not, and then I'll share. I'm not going to share anything else otherwise beforehand. Well, how do I know if you're a good fit? And pretty much any advisor who comes in up front and says, I'm going to give you nothing until you put in front of me some form of compensation agreement, it's called an equity vesting agreement, they probably don't have much to offer. They should be willing to come in, provide some initial level of advice that perhaps it might even end there. You might have given them free insight, but that it's okay. And I've since adopted that myself, where most of the advisor positions I have at startups have almost always started with one, two, three, sometimes four meetings, where I, I'm not in a rush. I want to know if it's worth my time as well. Many cases... I don't sign anything and they take the insights I provide. I'm completely fine with that. In some cases, I come on as a formal advisor and get some equity. Speaking of the giving thing, I can relate to Maggie. Early on in my career, I kind of did what she did, which was I didn't talk to people much outside of the job. And then oftentimes I ended up only taking meetings when I needed something. And I was yeah. in that cringe moment. And it doesn't matter how charismatic you are, how you can spin words, at the end of the day, when you hit that ask, and it's not that the ask is problematic. There's just no equity built up there. And I didn't understand that. I just remember it was like, wait a second, it's such an uncomfortable situation. And that's why those conversations should be happening a lot early. She should have been kind of tapping those networks. So then when the ask does come, if right. it comes, it doesn't feel out of left field. But even if you've built all those relationships, is a heartfelt LinkedIn post, <laughs> post layoff, is that the move? Because there are people in my Sweet life relatively frequently who have made those because advertising is a volatile industry who I do think are great and who I do really appreciate. I'm never quite sure how to react to a post like that, unless there happens to be a position that would be perfect for them at the company. But generally right. it is a little bit, it's way more socially acceptable now, but it's a little, it's a, I don't want to be an asshole, but it's a little icky. <laughs> Do you like the post too, Matt? Do you like it? Because if you like it, it's you're like you're like yeah, you got laid off. Oh yeah, or love? Do you love it? Do you clap? What do you? <laughs> I don't know. I think in Maggie's position, it may make sense since she didn't take the time yeah. initially to re warm up her contacts. It may make sense to post that and try the sympathy card. The nature of those referrals she get may not be that strong because these are people who aren't doing it on basis of trust. It is purely sympathy. But Maggie kind of was wavering on that. Should I write that post? Maybe she's immersed in too much Gen X culture because the question she asked herself is, is that a good look? 
But I understand her hesitancy to make that post, Matt. She's thinking like I do, and I think a lot of older people do, is back in the day, you kind of didn't want to share that you got laid off. It kind of, yeah, at the that's time, the thing. Do you want to shout it from the rooftops? Now, it seems like younger people are more comfortable. For me, I just hide under a rock and make up a story. Then I emerge triumphant. Do you know what I'm Leia, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I actually went back and got an MBA. So that's what happened. <laughs> They're like, where is it, Aaron? I was on a sabbatical. I was on a journey. We talked about it. I went to Hawaii and I found myself. <laughs> that's a great you story. Found my real Ohana. Well, and layoffs are more, I feel like layoffs, maybe this is just my perception. So people can, you know, go ahead and message me on Instagram and tell me I'm an idiot. I feel like layoffs are more, they're just happening all the time. It's like every five years, there are mass tech layoffs, mass consultancy, banking, whatever it is. It doesn't necessarily mean you're bad at your job, that you were laid off or terminated or whatever. So people are more open about it. Yeah. It, it seems like the, the law of the land around presumed innocent before guilt has now made its way into employer-employee relationship and psychology. We're same thing. I think maybe in the 60s, it was the presumption was you were a bad employee if you got fired from, I don't know, Procter & Gamble in the 60s. Now it's, no, maybe... The company actually is at fault. What about this idea that she's kind of going back in her head, not just the networking, but also like the rapid firing of applications, right? So we get to the mm -hmm. now what part. Have you had this experience of like, whether it's using a bot or something, do you just put out like 700 applications immediately or do you take a breath? What is your thoughts about the rap, about Maggie kind of going rapid fire on getting a new job with the application process? I've gotten more than one job from just applying on a website or through LinkedIn or I think there's also an element where, and I said this, I've said this before in advertising where there is kind of a small network. So you apply to something and then they see you've worked at a place where they know someone who's worked there. And so they tap in and ask if you're, but I've definitely done like cold applications on. You've done cold. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think if you do that, I think there are two approaches to this. I think if you do the mass frequency or just like a lot of number of application route, then you have to be very aware of like how it works, how the cogs work at these big machines. And so even in an era before AI, the way it worked was you had HR talent folk screening resumes for keywords. You'd have to kind of hit on a keyword to even be registered. And what's interesting now is with AI, particularly this is Magnifold now where and you already have this at some of the more sophisticated companies, identifying the keywords that company or that team associates with good candidates. And I think we talked about this in a previous show. There's a really good version of this that happened at Amazon, a story that in their case, it didn't work. They retired the unit in 2018. But I think it's all kind of coming back into play now as the AI is more accurate, particularly with these large language models. But from the book, The Alignment Problem, which I know I talked about beforehand, there's a really interesting story where a machine learning team at Amazon created 500 computer models, all focused on specific job functions and locations. And they taught the machine or the neural network to recognize 50,000 terms that showed up on past candidates' resumes that were candidates who performed well at the job, right? And they're like, basically, through association, can we match future resumes that come in with these and kind of teach the machine to identify? It ended up being inherently racist, right? Yeah. And sexist. Exactly. And so decently smart way, it tried to like assign little significance to the common Stuff like if it's an engineer, of course, you can write code. So let's not focus on that. But the problem was the, there were words like executed and captured that ended up indexing very high. It's like, oh, prior resumes of candidates performed well, 
used words like executed and captured. Well, it so happens that more male candidates using these words as well. Yeah. There's just ton- tons of gender bias. And then it also penalized resumes that had the word woman in there or women's chess club, oh, no. you know, mm. stuff like this. Mm. So they just scrapped the model. Yeah. But the point is that these models do exist and they're being reintroduced now that the AI is more accurate. And so if you're going to play that volume game where you're just going to mass fire off your resume, you have to be a little smart about it where you yourself at least make sure you put the right keywords, keywords into your resume that you think will get screened or flagged positively. And in some cases, that might need to be narrow where it's like, if you're applying cross-industry, you might have to have six different versions of your resume with different keywords planted in it. You really need to look at it at that sophistication. Now, I wouldn't be surprised in the future there's a, an AI platform that gets launched, which will do it for you. We'll right. take your existing resume and soup it up. be excellent. So That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, the hard thing is that HR teams aren't particularly good at sorting through resumes either. I've gotten resumes where I'm like, why? Why would you think this is one to raise? And I've had people raise skepticism over resumes where, let's say, they're not familiar with the kind of elite, historically Black universities and colleges. If they don't know Morehouse, they're not going to put that resume up when actually that's an amazing school. I just have to say this, elephant in the room. Matt, one of the things I love, we talk about this being the lonely office. We talk about the challenges of remote work and working around it. I have a terrible looking fern in the background and I hear your twins <laughs> crying in the background. Here's the reality. Uh, yeah, we, we don't do just here. say we work in the lonely office. Matt's on the front lines, folks. <laughs> He's in here orchestrating a podcast. He's got new kids. I just want to highlight the authenticity. What I was criticizing Maggie for potentially doing is being authentic. We're doing that on this podcast. So there's something here to be said about just being honest about what's happening. And a lot of times people and networks respond to that honesty. And I can't believe we haven't said this yet, but she needs to take a day or two or however long it is to like be in her feelings before she makes any big moves. She's still in the hallway. She's sweating. Yeah. She's in her brain right now. Well, whether it's a mass layoff and it's her fault or not. So she's got to take a minute and really strategize around what she's doing before she jumps in. Because I think that's what makes some of those LinkedIn posts extra special is that people haven't taken the time to sort of sort through their feelings and now come in strategically and make their posts. They're just laying it all out there, which can be dangerous. The whole phenomena of this remote firing Let me get on TikTok and and talk about... You disabled your email (laughs) and Slack instance or instantaneously. And so you don't even give it a a beat, literally. You immediately go to Twitter and say, hey, 30 seconds ago, my Slack account... That's like the worst thing you could do, right? Take a breath, right? Right. Yeah. But I also think, and this is where I wanted to go into, is shouldn't you also be crafting your story as well? Oftentimes, when you look at the posts that work, that magic on LinkedIn, when they work, it's because it's a really good story. When they don't work and it's magic because it's cringy and nice to look at and like a really like, oh my God, I can't believe this person, they don't have their story down. So that's one of the things over my career that I didn't do well before and then learned to do, which was craft a narrative and then being able to weave that into that next interview with Matt, right? Definitely done interviews where if it comes up outright, you should definitely have a story crafted around why you were laid off and what happened. If it doesn't come up, if I haven't asked someone what happened with your last job, I don't know that it always needs to be addressed. Matt, does Megan need to explain that termination in her next interview? 
I don't think any longer you have to know. I think if it's a one month stint, you do. The context is important here. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about in the times where I was hiring and I saw like a two month stint at a company or a three month stint. And in those cases, you kind of do. But back to the crafting story, you always should be crafting a story. I mean, everything you do, no matter how valuable of an experience you think you had at the company, the other party doesn't know that. And the only way they know that is not from a resume bullet point. It's from the story you tell. And even when you're at your current job, you should be thinking of every project you're about to take. How does this add to the story of my one year, two year, 10 year stint at this company? Build it in a, like an act one, act two, act three. Think of it as a movie or a play of sorts. Give it drama. It's not going to be in the resume. It's not going to be the cover letter, but it will appear in that first call interview with the next employer where you'll just you'll have the story to tell about that two-year stint. If you were in a two-year stint personal relationship, dating relationship, dating someone, you have that, right? You have that story on demand. Why would you not have that with an employer? It's really no different. It's two years of your life. Yeah, You should have that story. You bring up a great point. I think people should think like entrepreneurs, even if they work for a company. That means, you're right, articulating what you do, being able to tell a story. Because if you have it ready, that means that you're thinking in an entrepreneurial way. You're using it as a way to look for the next opportunity, even if that opportunity is within a company. I think this is a big misconception is, okay, no, I'm an employee, therefore I just have to do the work. No, you got to be thinking like it's your own business. It's your business to work there. Right. And then it's, it's your, your business. It's your time. It's your time. You're spending, you're spending months, years at, the, at this employer. But maybe as a transition point here, Aaron, we talked about the importance of taking a beat. Maybe in the moment you feel desperate that you want to quickly apply and find the next job. And it's a matter of survival and paying rent, totally get it. And, but in some cases, you might have the luxury of waiting a bit to see what's your next move. And too often I've seen friends of mine who may have the financial capability to hold out for a month or two, just immediately go back because they're stressed and they've just been enslaved or, or, or trained on this, <laughs> this idea of like, I always need to be employed. I think I came across the term fun employment recently. Yeah. You're not unemployed, you're fun employed, meaning you take a month or two of purposely not searching for your next job, going take on a trip, take yeah. a trip, vacation, whatnot. Maybe Maggie wants to be fun employed for a week or two, or maybe... Maggie actually has some wacky business idea that she's considering. Maybe this could be the opportune time to seriously consider that and start that business venture. Ever since the pandemic, the number of business applications filed annually has just absolutely skyrocketed. So prior to the pandemic, the baseline average on an annual basis was around you know, three and a half million new business applications a year. Now, just because you're doing a new business application doesn't mean it's a new business, but it shows motivation to start new new ideas, new ventures. So around three and a half million between the years of 2017, 2019, 2020, the first year of the pandemic, it jumped to a, a record at that time of four and a half million. And then in 2021 to five and a half million. In 2022, more recently, it was around 5.15 million. So it's still like a 50% increase off the pre-pandemic baseline. So it just goes to show people are motivated now more than ever, maybe after having recalibrated their lives and this idea of work-life balance and do I want to have a little more control in my life to Aaron's point and not be at the mercy of the employer. Maybe this is an opportune time for Maggie to consider starting a new business or at least think about it before she mass emails her friends. She didn't ask herself the question of, 
do I go out on my own? She didn't even ask herself. So maybe that doesn't even occur. So anybody listening, actually take a beat. Actually take some time. Take a couple of days. Don't do the live TikTok of you getting fired. Take a moment and reflect and think about it. Because I think that's the one moment, the time to actually ask yourself the important question, not just like, do I want to work or do I want... It's actually, what do you want to do? Did you actually like being a project manager for five years. If you did, then you know exactly what you need to get back into, and then you adjust accordingly. You're right, Matt, people get into a rhythm where it's, I just have to do what I was doing before, and it's all about just getting back on track, as opposed to just stopping. Maybe you can find a passion play, right? Still hold those casual meetings, but have the meetings be approached from the the lens of, what do you do at your job, and what industry? And I'm actually exploring options. So rather than yeah. asking for a referral, it becomes about exploring options and all of a sudden that kind of disarms the conversation and makes it easier for this contact to share all this information. And then I almost guarantee you at the end of that, if it's a pleasant conversation, they'll be like, you know what, by the way, if you ever consider this, let me know. Maybe I can help you out. People love to give in that case. People like to talk about themselves. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> it's risky, of course, if you're starting your own venture, aside from meeting, maybe meeting with friends who've done it before, who have a small business or medium-sized business or maybe even a startup recognizing that there's benefits to even failing. And so one of my favorite studies as a tech entrepreneur, I've like long leaned in psychologically speaking to motivate me to start my next thing, even if it fails, is there's a study called Failing Just Fine. And in this case, they assess the careers of venture capital-backed entrepreneurs. But I I would argue ultimately this extrapolates to even non-venture capital-backed entrepreneurs. And they looked at career achievement, looking at a database of, of 5 million resumes, It looked at graduates, contemporaneous graduates of the same tier colleges with similar jobs right before a startup's launch. These are presumably people, professionals who have all gone to similar colleges and then a subset or cohort of them go on to launch a failed venture capital startup and others don't. And where do they end up? And they found that the former founders, even the failed ones, landed jobs with higher seniority than those attained by their peers in the meantime. And what this really suggests is that there's a benefit to being even a failed entrepreneur. Yeah, you see how the sausage is made, right? You see how the sausage is made. And people are like, well, what is that benefit? Well, you're learning all these marketable skills, whether it's fundraising, product development, managing people. There's just a smorgasbord of tricks that you you learn. It's a very Midwestern (laughs) thing for you to say, Matt. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) Tricks that you learn when you're launching a business. So and in this case, it was a research paper, well-cited, that goes to show that, yeah, I mean, there's upward movement even if you fail. Even if it's not your business that you're working in, if you're working to grow the business and you're constantly thinking about the business as a whole and adding value, those are the kind of things that make a company want to keep you there. But also, that's that's working above your pay grade, and so, <laughs> which is something that people have been highly critical of right. over the past few years. I think it all starts with that question, which is, holy shit, I got fired. Now what? And I think the fact that you just stop and ask yourself that and give yourself time to answer, that's that first step. 
Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.